1: Other interesting points revealing the greatest economic crime in history. Hi Neil Garfield here and this is Thursday February 2nd 2007. Good afternoon for those in the western time zones and good evening to those in the East. Bill Padalel joins me again to finish up talking about that case in California where he testified and where it started off simple, And the judge made it increasingly complex and convoluted, I might add. Then we will talk about an article being published tomorrow on my blog about U.S. Bank and the whole trustee business. Uh, Charles Marshall will not be on. He is stuck in court, and he will be joining me next week to talk more about Voidable, but I'll talk a little bit about that uh, uh, momentarily. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, Honors Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you, some of you must have memorized this by now, because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345. Last digit, spell my name, Neil, N-E-I-L. That's our main number. And pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you then, and for the blog has value to you and the other things we do has value for you then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers and if you're a representative of the bank I see two of you on right now then I'd like it if you made a contribution but I really don't expect it void or the courts want it both ways. The same void instrument that gives rise to a lawsuit for wrongful foreclosure and gives rise to the presumption of emotional distress and other damages is regarded as voidable in California during the wrongful foreclosure. And the issue isn't just about assignments. It's about modifications too. And lots of of courts are following the lead of California as enunciated in the Ivanova decision from the California Supreme Court. In its simplest form, void has always meant that there was no meaning or effect to a document even though it was written and signed. If the subject matter didn't exist... In the Imanova decision by the California Supreme Court, they expressly allow void instruments as a vehicle for foreclosure. But they say if the instrument was void during foreclosure, then after foreclosure, the homeowner can sue for damages. That's trying to have it both ways. And... As we'll be discussing with Bill shortly, that's kind of what's happening in courtrooms as the courts continue to bend over backwards to let banks win foreclosures that they know are fraudulent, fabricated, forged. The idea is to clear out the foreclosure inventory and then let those brave souls who wish to do so sue for compensatory and punitive damages. It's all about saving the banks, and it's all about the homeowners, the American taxpayer. There's no mistaking the goal to allow as many foreclosures to proceed regardless of the law, regardless of the facts, and regardless of common sense. Our economy is still struggling not because we spent $3 trillion on wars, but because the banks took the better part of $30 trillion out of our financial system. So if this doctrine was applied to other void instruments, you can see how stupid this gets. I sign a deed giving your house to my Uncle Joe. I don't own your property, and I never met you. This is called a wild deed in property law, in all states and territories. It is void, and there's no making it unvoid. At the time that I gave the deed to my Uncle Joe, I didn't own it, and I had no right to be signing that deed in my own name or even under your name as the owner of the house. The grantee under that deed, my Uncle Joe, can sue to evict you, as because Uncle Joe is the new owner of the property according to the property records, and if you go by the logic of the even over court and the, the rest decisions in California, you can't stop Uncle Joe evicting you just because the deed was void but you can sue him and maybe me after you've been kicked out of your, your house onto the street and you can get damages if you have the resources and will to go after me and Uncle Joe for damages. Somehow, the Ivanova court invented the concept that an assignment or modification was voidable until the actual foreclosure was complete. After that, after you've lost title, after you've lost possession of your house, you can sue for damages based upon the fact that the foreclosure was wrongful and that it was based on a void instrument. We've really gone off the rails, folks. So my, we'll be talking more about the uh the way this is applied, even the even over court, the Supreme Court of, of California, would not come to the same conclusion in the example that I gave you. They would say, if I gave a deed to your house, to my Uncle Joe, it's a wild deed and it's void and go home. And if Uncle Joe was seeking eviction, he might even you know, uh, get hit with sanctions because he knew that the whole thing was a scam. That doesn't happen in the case of mortgage deeds or deeds of trust. And that dichotomy is, is kind of tearing at the fabric of judicial doctrine. It's wrong to have that kind of dichotomy. People should know in a and the importance of, of a marketplace, they should know that an instrument is either valid or void. And when they go to record it, they should know what the consequences are going to be. That is now under pressure and has been for the last 10 years. 2017 is the 10th year. In which the blog and some form of this show has been uh, uh, moving lawyers and pro se litigants to litigate the real issues. So, to give another example of a dichotomy, Bill Padalo had the pleasure of, well, I don't know if it was a pleasure. But he testified in a court case in Cal, and the object of the uh, of the case was real simple: the gutsy move. Basically, we had a Linda Green signature, which we all know is a forgery and fabricated, and she's she's literally put out to the farm now. They did. Uh, a piece on uh, 60 Minutes on her, and they went to to court to say, we want the court to declare this instrument, an assignment, um, to be void, because it is void. And the party who signed it was not authorized to do so, and this is a classic definition of a void instrument. Welcome, Bill, back to the show.
2: Talk about the rest. Thanks for having me again, Neil. (laughs) Well, just a little follow up. um, I I actually talked to Al West maybe about 30 minutes here before today's program, and so I was getting the skinny from him in terms of the the actual order that came down here um, uh, by the court. And so I'm going to kind of repeat a little bit of. Uh, what Al is telling me, so hopefully there's nothing lost in translation between that conversation, but essentially Al was uh, obviously frustrated with the decision and the ruling. It was kind of a head-scratcher because it appears um, that the judge completely obviously ignored the entire issue before the court, it appears, and uh, came out with an opinion that dealt with The intentional torts of fraud sort of laying out the the elements needed to prove that uh, in order to gain the relief that was being sought well that really wasn't what the issues uh, were that were before the court you know essentially and and to spell it out in kind of simplistic terms it's like coming in and having a two-day trial talking about uh, a zebra essentially uh, and all the elements of a zebra, and then having the court come back in its uh, decision and break down and talk entirely about uh, a camel. You know, it's like, it, and and according to Al, it was even surprising to the other side. They kind of glanced at each other, like they, where is this coming from? It's way out of left field and has absolutely nothing to do with with the issue before the court. And and apparently they used the standard of review or the judge did uh, again, as though the borrower was bringing claims uh, under the under you know the the tort uh, claims under fraud and was seeking damages and and needing to prove that there was intent and all this sort of thing which again totally irrelevant before the court so there's obviously some you know it's frustrating to have to go down this process of an appeal you know as it is with most uh, homeowners they get really frustrated that they have to go and exert that kind of time and expense but I think the good positive point to take from this case, and, and I'm in agreement with Al, is that I think we've hit a nerve here when, when you make something uh, or take a strategy such as this and you make it very clear-cut and simple and the court chooses to uh, go in such a far direction off off course uh, to get to the conclusion uh, that, that this court did – I think it's kind of telling that they don't know what to do um, uh, with, with this strategy at some point because obviously we're optimistic, or Al West, is that uh, this, this won't hold up on appeal.
1: You know, it reminds me of, uh, I'll paraphrase a, a joke, uh, uh, of person murders his business partner, goes to court, And he's acquitted of bank robbery.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's. I mean, it sounds silly uh, to use that kind of an analogy or metaphor or whatever. But it literally is is what's taking place in so many of these cases. And and now you know, as you're going to talk a little bit here in this show about U.S. Bank. it's just amazing in all these jurisdictions and especially cases i've been involved in including my own uh you go up against an entity like u.s bank as trustee and it's like you're you're in a in a fight with a ghost and you you literally are a boxing match with a ghost you can't land a punch you're 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 flailing at 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 the air and the wind changes direction uh, no matter what jurisdiction you're in or what day it is and and the stories change and the and the um, the old, you know, yeah, because, what do they call the old three money, uh, three card Monty or whatever? It just the uh, the cards are constantly shuffling and moving. It's a moving target, right? It, because U.S. Bank never appears as U.S. Bank.
1: It appears as trustee, and then there's a blank that they fill in uh, of a non-existent entity, and. Uh, but even assuming that that wasn't the case, U.S. Bank does exist. But as a trustee in these remit trusts and in the securitization schemes that failed or were redone or whatever, it's not appearing as U.S. Bank the bank. It's appearing as U.S. bank. Trustee, and the only reason it's appearing as U.S. Bank trustee is because some document says U.S. Bank is appointed trustee or because, as we've seen, Bank of America and others sold the position of being trustee to U.S. Bank. I'm of the opinion that the position of trustee is no more saleable to another party than the position of parent. I mean, I've got uh, Mm -hmm. six grandchildren. Uh, If you use the logic here that they're Mm -hmm. trying to use, I could possibly make some money by selling my position as parent um, uh, of, of my children. Uh, But nobody can do that. It's not a marketable commodity. Imagine if you did a family trust and you appointed, let's bring back Uncle Joe, as the trustee. And Uncle Joe turns around and, and sells it to Aunt Agnes, whom you hate. That's just not possible to do without doing an amendment to the trust document in which the beneficiaries are notified as to what's happening and the trustor. Now, one of the things that's never clear in the in the pooling and servicing agreements that serve as the trust instrument is who the trustor is. Who is the person creating this trust? The truth is it's the underwriting bank that's selling the bogus mortgage bonds um, that is creating this false entity that's registered nowhere. And they're using the, they're renting with a fee, a monthly fee, they're renting the name U.S. Bank so that it looks like a trust. You don't see really who the trust door is. And when you look at the position of trustee, which I said, I guess it was eight or nine years ago, having read many of the pooling and servicing agreements, it was obvious that the trustee description starts off looking like a trustee, but by the time you finish reading the pooling and servicing agreement, there's nothing left they don't the trustee has no powers it has no duties, and a trustee without any powers and duties is what not a trustee
2: so yeah they, they yeah they take um they wear definitely two faces and wear two hats uh depending on where you try to box them in um in my own particular case in the in the federal court that i'm I'm still involved in in montana i really tried to split and uh the entities being the remick trust and u.s bank and separate these two and find out specifically what is your role and no matter which way i ask the questions whether through formal discovery or whatnot u.s bank comes back and says we're just the trustee we don't own anything we have no knowledge you got to deal with the servicer you know we're simply a trustee and then when I point out that in Montana the specific laws require the individual remit trust to register in the state and disclose who their trustee is uh, they get around that and then they come out and say well uh, we acquired the beneficial interest in your deed of trust we're the we're the owner of this thing and again if most people that have followed your site and uh, a couple articles that i've provided show u.s banks flyer their role of trustee flyer that they've advertised and it's still on their website and they specifically say uh, and disclose in there that they they take no beneficial interest in any of the mortgages or deeds they have no knowledge of any foreclosure actions they have no knowledge of any default they have no knowledge of anything they're the the sergeant schultz i call them of of the whole foreclosure process, I mean they literally know nothing, but when pressed uh, on some of these issues in their capacity and their authority they they'll switch tunes and say, "We own it, we have acquired the beneficial interest I mean it just doesn't matter um, yeah, again it's a moving target at all times, and my particular case it's interesting because uh, when I tried to split these entities apart and I was trying to uh, Uh, show that these are two separate distinct entities. Um, U.S. Bank, as the trustee in their answer, when they're saying that we're just a trustee, denied the existence of the actual WAMU trust as both a Delaware statutory trust, which that trust is registered in Delaware as such. It's right on their Delaware website. And it also denied... That the wamu uh two thousand seven o trust was an irrevocable trust, which that is clearly stated in its p s a that that's the type of uh, entity that was uh created, so here you have if you know on one hat the them acting as trustee, and they're denying the existence of the very thing that they're acting as fiduciary
1: <laughs> right right exactly and and uh Uh, Of course, homeowners cannot sue U.S. Bank for breaching a fiduciary duty that might be implied by its acceptance of a fee to be named as trustee for a trust that doesn't own anything, but uh, only investors uh, would have the standing to sue there. There's a theoretical argument for saying that the borrowers have standing, but given the current judicial climate, I can't imagine that that would get traction anywhere. Uh, but the, the article that I have coming out tomorrow parses a uh, letter that was sent by a person who claimed to be an officer of U.S. Bank. And uh, it, it's interesting uh, when you parse it how little sense it actually makes. He starts off by saying he researched this person's mortgage and has determined that uh, U.S. Bank is merely the trustee for for a pool of mortgages in which your loan sits. So he makes that statement. But along with what's in the letter... And if you read the pooling and servicing agreement, you will see a couple of things. He's disclaiming any authority or responsibility for the trust assets. So what research did he perform? Where did he get his information from when the authority and responsibility for the loans rests with some third party? And to get down to the nitty-gritty... U.S. Bank clearly could not have business records if U.S. Bank had nothing to do with the loans. So the business records that are always tendered in court are being tendered by subservicer entities who have been on that musical chair ride where they change them and each time they change them they supposedly did a boarding process which they didn't do and which they couldn't do because the data is created fabricated at LPS Black Knight and when the subservicer changes all that happens is like MERS all that happens is that the subservicer dials in to the server at LPS, now known as Black Knight, and they've been registered as now the uh, having access to the data for the purposes of foreclosure. So the actual business records are not, being produced pursuant to the proper foundation of a witness who comes from the company who's maintained the business records. he He or she comes from a company that says those are the business records of SPS or Aquin or whatever, but they're not. And I've elicited exactly that admission in cross-examination that, in fact, these records are on the LPS system and maintained by them and created by them. There is no boarding because there's no data being transferred to anybody. It's just the access to the data that's being transferred. So... Uh, So he makes a statement that the uh, U.S. Bank is merely the trustee for the pool of mortgages in which your loan sits. I don't know what merely the trustee means, but I'm pretty sure it means something less than the trustee. Because, again, when you put it together, it's nondescriptive language that essentially disclaims any actual authority or duties. So then... As as Bill was just saying, he says, and I'm quoting, the trust does not have the authority to make any decisions regarding your mortgage loans. Well, that's interesting. The trustee, who is the sole party that represents the trust, which supposedly has the loans, really doesn't, but let's say it does, the sole party who represents the entity that supposedly owns the loans has no authority. And later, he says, the servicer is the party to the trust that has the authority and responsibility to make decisions regarding individual loans in the trust. It is the servicer who has taken all action regarding your property. That last part indicates to me a concession, which is why this letter is off the market now. Uh, This was written in, in 2013. That's a concession that the servicer as he's referring to it, get into that in a minute, may have been involved in the origination of your loan because the party that he's talking about is the master servicer. The subservicers are just sham conduits for information that's made up by FBS. So if the servicer is the party to the trust that has the authority and responsibility to make decisions regarding individual mortgage loans in the trust. That theoretically might be possible, but the only assets in the trust are, according to them, are mortgage loans. So if the servicer is the only party who has the authority and responsibility that would make the servicer the actual trustee, while U.S. Bank is the named trustee, and there you have the game again—musical chairs. The idea, like Bill said, this is like a ghost. If you come at them one way, they say we're the servicer. You come in another way, we're the trustee. There, you know, uh, there are multiple examples of this in every supposed REMIC trust. So in, in dealing with that, uh, and you'll see this in my article tomorrow morning, uh, you'll see how much money could be made by crooks because what they're doing is they're hiding everything from the investors, they're hiding everything from the borrowers, and then they're stepping into the void that they created and saying, we're the lender, we are the servicer, we are the be-all and end-all. So then you, you get to, and I've heard this also, well, these third parties were merely hired by the trust and you know uh, who's to say that US Bank didn't hire them or affiliate with them in some way well in the letter and i'm quoting while US Bank understands and wishes to assist you with this matter the servicer is the only party with the authority and responsibility to make decisions regarding your mortgage, and they are not affiliated with U.S. Bank in any way. So there you have another ghost.
2: Who's in charge? It's it's, it's also of of, of note, I'm sorry, Neil, go ahead. No, go ahead. I wanted you to comment. Oh, uh, I just, you know, along those lines, I think, you know, most people should be aware as well. If you look in, and it's typically Section 8 of the of the pooling and servicing agreements when they talk about trustee duties. But there's a section typically in a lot of the PSAs that talk about the appointment of co-trustees or separate trustees. And they actually... Disclose, and, I, and I've got one up in front of me here from a, from a WAMU trust, and it's very similar in the language, but it says notwithstanding any other provisions hereof at any time for the purpose of meeting any legal requirements of any jurisdiction in which any part of the assets of the trust may be, the trustee and the servicer have the authority to appoint one or more parties to be either a co-trustee or a secret trustee, and they don't have to disclose to the certificate holders or anybody else that there is a secret co-trustee, nor does that trustee have to, uh, and it says, uh, the trustee hereunder shall be required or shall not be required to meet the eligibility of a successor trustee. So they're already admitting that if there are certain laws in certain states that they're going to run into hurdles and have problems and difficulties overcoming, uh, doing what they're doing. They're, they're going to kind of go underground and stealth and give the trustees and the servicers authority to appoint all of these, you know, a- entities without any disclosure, to anybody, including the investors.
1: That's true. And if you, if you keep going around, uh, With all of these entities, the idea is to have created, through smoke and mirrors, an impenetrable haze of of kind of a circular motion like a cloud um, in, in, in the players, in the entities, some of which are completely sham entities, never existed, never will uh some of them have been in existence but are not now, and some of them are in existence but didn't perform the function
2: that they supposedly performed so well yeah this the sham entity I wrote an article about here recently which you posted is this l s f nine it's u s bank trust n a now you have to look at these things closely because there's so many different versions of the u s bank name but they'll do u s bank national association but They'll also do US Bank Trust NA as trustee. And the article that you posted that I wrote recently on this LSF9 Master Participation Trust, what's really alarming about that particular one is that uh, in a case that I'm uh, currently involved in out in Connecticut, uh, in the eleventh hour, after a lot of pressure and uh, uh, motions to compel whatnot uh, they coughed up a partial redacted servicing securitization servicing agreement which I post in the article and it specifically names the l s f nine master participation trust as its role of being nothing but a participation agent and u s bank trust is named as the fiduciary for that agent but as i down the layers of that onion the LSF 9 master participation agent or trust is is really an agent on behalf of upwards of 15 different uh, mortgage-backed securities transactions which the true named trustee is US Bank NA and so in all of these cases where you have this LSF nine entity coming in as either the plaintiff or foreclosing non nonjudicial States or whatever, I, uh, it appears uh, certainly that that entity is, is not the investor, but rather a uh, ghost or a, um, an agent on behalf of even more undisclosed investors. It's, it's, it's a sham entity that doesn't hold anything. Exactly.
1: And, you know, Uh, they will fight like hell not to answer the following two questions. U.S. Bank has a trust department. Is the trust department managing this trust? Because the answer is no, because there is no trust. And the second question is, well, okay, so the trust department is not managing this trust. That is, the trust department of U.S. bank trustee for the trust is not managing it. Okay, so is there a bank account in the name of the trust? I mean, U.S. bank, you're a bank, right? So do you have an account for the trust? They don't want to answer that either because there isn't one. And the reason there isn't one is that the proceeds of the sale of the bogus mortgage bonds never made it into the trust, which is why the trust was unable to buy or even originate loans. The loans were made using the money from investors, but they were not used in the way that was agreed investors bought mortgage bonds, believing that it would be under the administration and supervision of U.S. Bank as trustee for the purchase and management of residential mortgage loans. Well, that never happened. Instead, the money was used for the origination of loans which was never contemplated, and the origination of loans that did not meet the criteria that was set forth in the trust instrument and in the prospectus. They don't want to answer questions like that. And I encourage lawyers and forensic analysts to think about these things and what questions might be asked which is to say, if things are as you say, US bank or attorney for US Bank as trustee for the trust, then where is this and where is that and show me the records of the depositor and the custodian and all of that stuff? You'll never get it because they don't exist. The whole thing is a figment of Wall Street imagination. And to use perhaps the wrong uh, analogy, they're laughing all the way to the bank. First, they stole the money. Then they were stealing the houses. Then they claimed they were losing money because of all the defaults. But they weren't loaning their money. They were loaning the investors money. So there were no defaults. And so the TARP bailout became not a bailout for defaults on loans, but they changed the title of it, or the description of it, to mean the bailout of um, the, the certificates, the bonds. But the bank's Weren't buying the bonds; they were selling the bonds. And well, what you, get,
2: what you res- got now? What you got now, Neil, and this is probably a segue into another show. But now you've got these new animals of trusts that are being created that are simply. Securitizing and selling the receivables of the advances that the servicers have been making to the investors in this Ponzi scheme. So now you've got situations where you know people have uh, the investors have been getting fronted these advance payments of P and I and everything every single month for years now. Well, now they're they're marketing and making money and packaging those as receivables and having those entities uh, somehow coming in saying that. Uh, they have a right to the property through the deed of trust and assignments. When all they did was was purchase advance receivables, so it's it's just getting more and more absurd. Uh,
1: I would I would go further and correct you a little bit on uh, on the actual uh, uh, way that works out. The so-called advances, servicer advances. Uh, uh, they're called servicer advances, but they're not advances, and they're not from the servicer. The servicer, the master servicer, is the one controlling everything, and it has a dark pool of investor money. The money that, the, that, that is, quote, advanced, end quote, to the investors comes from the investor's own money. It's right. all part of the Ponzi scheme. But you're right. They are selling that receivable because in the pooling and servicing agreement, there seems to be some allowance after the, the uh, property is liquidated, there seems to be some allowance for the master servicer to make the claim on the advances, even though they didn't make the advances. Yep, exactly. So, I mean, they're getting money in, in every conceivable way, and the only reason that it uh, keeps on happening is that we've still got a few million more foreclosures to go. Then the, the banks who um, uh, have control of the media um, are basically putting out the message that the foreclosure crisis is behind us. But I can tell you from my business, maybe Bill can tell you the same thing, that we've never been busier. And I can find articles, local articles, that say that foreclosures have never been higher. While at the same time, there's, a, there's 20 articles out there that say that, you know, foreclosures are down 30%, 70% or whatever. That's just
2: another lie. All right. Bill, yeah, I, I, I'm seeing the I'm seeing the robo-signing and the, the documents uh, coming at me like a Gatling gun these days. And uh, it seems like we're right back to square one with very little regulation and no, no paying attention to the consent judgments, that's for sure.
1: Call Bill Patelow at 406-328-4075, P-A-A-T-A-L-O. Thank you, everybody, and good night.
2: Thanks, Neil.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.